So I've known Ernie quite a while. Ernie and Laura, I met him when he was a freshman at LSU. Um, Laura went to China with me on one of the first trips I ever led, probably, I think it was in 2005. So if you want stories, uh, hang out with me afterwards and I can share them, uh, they're abundant. Um, but I'm really proud, really proud of both of them, really thankful for what God continues to do in their life and that this church is a big part of what God's doing in their life. So. Uh, thanks for letting me be here. He said it quickly, but I get to work with an organization called Campus to Campus. And so I've been here several times for SALT, um, but we help church plant all over the world. And we work in major global cities that have huge university populations. Um, and our heart is to work with churches like Mercy Hill and to help you send teams of people and individuals who will move their lives there eventually to plant the very gospel that's changing you to plant that gospel in places like Osaka, Japan. So the team that y'all are working with this summer is in Osaka, Japan. Japan is 128 million people and 127 million of those 128 are unreached. So there's a huge need. Um, and we work in other places like India and China and Indonesia. So yeah, it's a real honor to get to do that. But today, um, my main purpose is to preach from the gospel of John. So y'all been walking through that, and so we're going to we're going to jump into John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible or device, you can turn there, and I will just set it up really quickly here, and then we will read the passage. But this is the most important week in the history of the world. This is the first day of the most important week in the history of the world, and that's not an un, that's not an overstatement. This is the Passion Week, and the passage we're going to be looking at today is t typically called the like a Palm Sunday passage. So it's going to be a little interesting doing it in November, in the middle of the winter, or whatever's coming. Um, but it's really, really important for us to see what John wants us to be exposed to today. And it's this, that there's a king, and he's the true king. And how we respond to this king changes everything. And so um, we're going to see the anticipation of the king and we're going to see then how the rejection of that king is followed by many there. And we're also going to see, though, the salvation that he brings. So we're going to read. We're going to start in verse, um, verse 12. And this is something I do anywhere I am. So would you mind standing for the reading of the word? And I will read it for us. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples then understood these things. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, guys. So we're going to... We're going to look at this first point, which is the anticipation of the king. And you have to appreciate, if you've been here walking through the Gospel of John, what has Jesus been doing as he's been performing miracles? Typically warning people right afterwards, hey, don't go and spread 
the news that just happened. Like, can you imagine, it's not in the Gospel of John, but when he raises Jairus' daughter, he basically tells them, keep this a secret. Don't let others know. Can you imagine your daughter being dead and then Christ walks in and says, rise, and she's given back to you, and he says, don't tell people. All you're gonna wanna do is tell people. But throughout the Gospels, that's kind of called the messianic secret. Jesus is doing these miracles. He's performing these incredible, incredible moments of healing and restoration, and then he's warning and saying, don't, don't go tell people. Why? Because he knew what would come with that. He knew there would be this great fervor of crowds that would be looking for him, not to be their king, but to be the one who continued to just perform more miracles. And so it wasn't time. But in chapter 11, probably a couple weeks ago, y'all looked at Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days, so by that time he started to smell. There was no like, oh, maybe he's just sleeping. No, he's dead. And then when Jesus raised him, crowds were everywhere and they saw it. And those people now continue to do what you would imagine they would do. This is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And so those crowds have, have, have grown and Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem at a time where Jerusalem would have been full of people. So historians think about 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem at this time. But during Passover, the numbers in Jerusalem could quadruple even, even more than that. There was a, a Jewish historian who said that there were 2.7 million people at one Passover in the, in the year AD 60. So maybe he inflated those numbers, but what we know is that this city is bursting at the seams. There are people that have come from all over the Mediterranean, wor Mediterranean world, and they are there to celebrate the Passover, and they have heard stories about this one who can raise the dead, and they're hoping that he might be the Messiah, that he might be the king, the promised one, the one that people have been waiting for, that he would restore peace and he would give them freedom. And so as he comes in, Jesus purposely seeks to fulfill a prophecy that's from the book of Zechariah. And he gets on that colt, on that donkey, and as he rides in from the east, um, people start to take palm branches and lay them down, and they start to sing a psalm. It's from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so that psalm that they're saying, it's from the, it's from the Old Testament. It was a psalm that Jewish pilgrims would chant as they were going up the road to Jerusalem preparing their hearts to meet with God. But it was a messianic psalm, meaning, God, we are saying Hosanna, which means save us. God, save us. Save us. And how will you save us eventually? By sending the king. By sending one like, that is like David who will come and he will restore all that we've lost. And so the, the palm branches, there's been another time where that had happened in Jewish history. Uh, there was a guy named Simon the Maccabee the Maccabean, and he led a revolt against the Syrians a hundred years earlier. And when he led the revolt, when he entered into Jerusalem, the people took palm branches and anointed him as king. They serenaded him. And so this is a very common thing that's happened, but it's a very special moment. The crowds know that this is the one, and they're looking for him to be the one that they've been waiting for. And so as you keep passing through it, you see that he then he gives us the prophecy from Zechariah, which we'll read in just a moment. But then it talks about the crowds in verse 17 and 18. Um, and we're going to look a little bit more deeply, but I just want to kind of walk through the passage for a second. So verse 17 and 18, it says there's two different crowds with Jesus. Witnesses from Lazarus's miracle were following Jesus and bearing witness. And then there were those from inside the city who have come out to meet him now, right? 
And then in verse 19, you see the Pharisees. And it says they are incredibly stressed because it looks like the entire population of Jerusalem has gone after Jesus and they don't know what to do. So what do we find out about this king? They're anticipating this. They're there. What do we find out about him? Let me read you the entire prophecy from Zechariah 9. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, old prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. When you read that and you see what's happening, Jesus is taking that prophecy, this picture of a king who's humble and righteous, who's going to bring salvation, not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. And he's fulfilling that in a way for the people to understand, even if they didn't understand in that moment. But you notice he comes in on a donkey, right? Not on a, God bless you, not on a horse. The acoustics are great. That was great. Uh, So he comes in on a donkey, not a horse. Like you don't have to know much about equestrian to appreciate that donkeys are lower on the rung when it comes to quality of an animal, right? So I had a friend, he's a missionary, he lives in India, and he had been in Spain, and he was so proud that he got to ride what he thought was a horse on the beach, and so he's showing pictures of his horseback riding to my daughter, and she's eight, but she knows the difference between a horse and a donkey, and so Ben's sitting there like, look at me, look at me on this horse, and she's like, hey, you're on a donkey, and he's like, nah, that's a horse. He told me it was a really great horse. She's like, no, that's a that's a, I want to say the other word, but she's like, that's a donkey. And, and finally, of course, you know, she Googles it for him and he sees and he's like, okay, I'm not proud of this moment anymore. But here you have Jesus choosing, choosing to ride in on a donkey. All through history, we have accounts of generals and what kind of horse are they going to ride into their city on? What kind of, st- what kind of mount? A, a stallion, a white horse, something that communicates elegance and, and, and power because they're coming in because they've already had victory or they're coming and announcing they're about to bring victory. But Jesus comes in riding on a donkey to announce that he's a different kind of king. He's not coming to wage war in a violent way. He's coming to bring peace through his death. And if you look at that passage, it says that he's gonna bring a ceasing, he's gonna be a cessation of war not just locally, but globally, war will end. These are some of the things that this king is gonna bring, and these are some of the things that people are getting so excited about. It also says he's gonna bring peace, not just peace for Jerusalem, but peace for the nations. His kingdom will extend from sea to sea. So my organization is called Campus to Campus, but our abbreviation is C to C. And literally, I think we chose it because of this passage, because our mission statement is to see gospel movements across the globe from U.S. churches working in places like Japan, India, Indonesia, and others, so that the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ would be known from sea to sea. That's, that's the promise here. And it says it's going to happen through the blood of a covenant. So what's going on 
2,000 years ago, when that crowd is out there saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus is riding in, is that Jesus is walking into this cry that was not just shared by people in the first century, but it's one that's been shared throughout the history of humanity. It's a cry in our hearts for a true king. Not a king who simply can bring victory because he's strong and courageous and just, but a, a king who knows how to, after bringing victory, rule with peace and humility and gentleness. Like, the combination of those two things is unheard of, and yet we long for it, right? We long for a king who is both glorious and majestic, but also gentle and humble, you see it captured in the scripture. You see it captured in, in story and in narrative form throughout, throughout humanity. So, I mean, one of my favorites is the Lord of the Rings. And what's the picture there? There's a picture of this darkness that is spread across Middle Earth because there is no good king. There's an evil force called Sauron. And everywhere he is, everything he touches, it destroys the land. And the people, the people barely have a hope but they still have a hope that there would be a king who would return and he would heal the land, that he would throw out that which is evil and that he would rule them with justice and peace. We see that in that. And that's what we, that's what we enter into today. Like if you pay attention to what's going on around the world, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Israel and Palestine, if you actually take the time to read, your heart breaks and you say, Lord, I want a king to come back who will bring true justice and true peace one who will restore shalom in a way that people will be made whole again. And, and then it can be easy to be so bewildered as you look at the political options that we might have to kind of say, oh, are you going to lead us into this next age? But Jesus is the one that we long for. All of those stories in history and all of that longing is found in its fullness in Christ. He's the idyllic picture in the real way. And there's a scene, so this is John, the Apostle John, but there's a book at the end of the Bible where he's also writing about a vision that he sees in the book of Revelation. Let me read you what he sees about this great king. Revelation 5, it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him, that's God, the Father, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. The scrolls basically contain the history of the world. And whoever could open it meant that they had the right to not only judge the world, but to rule it and to heal it. And so he saw no one worthy. And so he starts to weep. And one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he says, weep no more. Do you not see the lion, the lion, this ferocious animal, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? And then in verse 6, it says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. 
saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is one of the most important scenes in all of history, this vision that John gets to see. He, he knows he needs a lion. That was, not, that was not unexpected. That's a great picture of a king, a lion. But then when he looks at back, he doesn't just see a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just any kind of lamb, but a lamb that was slain. A lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion is exactly what the world needs. It's exactly what you and I need. The lion is a picture of courage and justice and majesty. A lamb is a picture of innocence and gentleness. And never before have those two things been combined in such a way that you didn't lose one or the other, right? But in Jesus, we get them both. There was a sermon by a guy 300 years ago named Jonathan Edwards. It was 15,000 words, over two hours. I won't go that long. Um, But the sermon's title was The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Jesus Christ. What? Like, I'm walking with my wife yesterday, and I told her, she's like, please translate. I mean, so the, the, the sermon title, The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Jesus Christ, basically what he's saying is these phenomenal co- combinations of characteristics that we've never seen before in one person. Maybe you know someone who's incredibly just, but they typically are not very humble. Or maybe you know someone who's very gentle, but they're not very courageous. But in Jesus Christ, think of some of the things that come together. This is from Jonathan Edwards. He says, infinite glory in the lowest humility. Infinite glory in the lowest humility in Christ. Infinite majesty, but transcendent meekness. Deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. You not notice with Jesus walking around, he just wants to worship the Father, and yet he is equal with the Father. Infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. Meaning Jesus loved what was good, but he was infinitely patient even when evil was happening around him and to him. An exceeding spirit of obedience coupled with a supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation self-sufficiency, and an entire trust and reliance on God. This is the king. Maybe not the king they were anticipating, but it's the king they got. This lion-like lamb, this lamb-like lion, this infinite but humble, this transcendent but near. This is the king that showed up that day. And his reign would be from sea to sea, and his salvation would not just be for Israel. It would not just be a local thing, but it would be for all nations. This is the king. Okay, so the question here has to be, I'm going to spoil the next few, you know, if you're here in a few weeks, you're going to find out if you didn't know already. But the crowd that's chanting Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd that's chanting that is going to be the same crowd that's going to chant crucify him. Crucify him. In just a few days, 
just a few days. And you've already seen, you've already seen the religious leaders, the people who are educated in the prophecies, who know who the Messiah is supposed to be, who are supposed to be waiting and serving. They're supposed to be stewards until the king shows up. They're supposed to be preparing the people, and they've already chosen to reject Jesus. So that's my question. And this point is the rejection of the king. Why does it happen? Why did it happen then, and why does it still happen today? Why could a king like this, this lion-like lamb, this lamb-like lion, why was he rejected then, and why do we still reject him today? For at the end of the gospel of or chapter 12, we get a little clue, and I'll just read it. It's John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. It says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So it said even many of the religious leaders believed in Jesus. They saw what he was doing. They couldn't turn away from his signs. They believed that those were true things. They knew that he was different. But because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, they chose to reject him. And I think that is in and of itself the heart reason that all people reject God. We love the glory. We love the temporary glory that we can get from others more than the glory that we can find in Christ by submitting to him and worshiping him as our king. And so the religious leaders, it looks different for them. They, their glory, their praise for men was this. They wanted to stay in control. <laughs> they rejected Jesus because Jesus would not come under their program. They wanted a king that would, that, would, that would allow them to stay in power and would continue to support their entire system of meritocracy. Basically was this. The Pharisees were like, hey, we're better than you because we work harder, we pray more, and we try more than you. And so God has blessed us, and you should look up to us. So they didn't like that Jesus was always coming around talking about not just what we do on the outside, but the reasons we do what we do on the inside. Talking about our heart. Talking about the sin that lives in our heart. And they knew they were being exposed, so they rejected Jesus. But what about the crowds who are there saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, why are they screaming crucify him. Why did they want the praise of men more than the praise of God? I think what you end up finding out is that Jesus became the wrong savior for them. He was the wrong kind of king. You probably have read about this before, but their primary concern at that time was political freedom and then material blessing, and it was not about spiritual salvation. They looked at Jesus, and they saw him as their ticket to get out from under the Roman oppression. And I don't want to downplay what that looks like, because they had been under some type of foreign power for over 600 years by this time. The Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Syrians, and then the Romans had ruled over Israel. And so they, they longed for a time where they would be a free people again. And they believed that Jesus would be the one, that he would be the one who would overthrow their foreign powers. And he would restore the kingdom of David. And he would bring peace and prosperity to them again. Because they saw those prophecies and they saw those promises in the Old Testament. And they were right to long for that type of freedom the problem was they made that type of freedom the most ultimate thing in their lives. And so as the Passion Week goes along and Jesus 
is not fitting into their mold for the kind of political savior they want. And he keeps talking more and more about dying, and he keeps talking more and more about dealing with sin. They start to turn on him because he's not the savior. He's not the king they think they need. So the immediate consequence for them was that they rejected Christ. The long-term consequence for them if they didn't turn back to Jesus is that they would miss the true king who could free them from things much greater than political oppression, that he could bring them into spiritual freedom and hope that would never end. So my question for us today is, how do we struggle to accept this king? Because there would be a deep naiveness in us if we thought, wow, that would never be me. I would never be there in the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then a few days later shouting, crucify him. And if you're saying that, if you're thinking that in your heart, then I know you don't know me, but I can only say this as kindly as possible. You're self-deceived because you don't know yourself enough. The reality is any of us are capable of one day saying, Jesus, I need you, and the next day saying, Jesus, get away from me. So why would we struggle, and why do we struggle? I think there's, a many, there's many different answers, but it comes back to the very same reason that all of them are struggling. We choose the glory of man to be more profitable than the glory of God. We choose to want the praise of others. We choose to want the things of this world more than we want the very things of God that will never, ever perish or spoil. And sometimes when we enter into this relationship with the Lord, maybe the, sal- the message we received was Jesus died in order to forgive you of your sins and take you to heaven, which is true. But if you didn't hear anything else after that, you've only got a very partial part of the God. You've got part of the gospel. Jesus died to free us for our, from our sins, yes, to be with him for eternity, but he died so that we could live with him today. He died so that he would be the center of our universe, that we as planets would orbit around him, the sun, not the other way around. And I think often that's not the message we want to hear. We want to hear a message that Jesus died for us in order to save us from our sins, and he will continue to live for us in order to give us what we need. And so there's like this theology of, of the cross and glory that's really lacking for a lot of Christians. Their, their picture is that once they're a Christian, basically between the cross and when Jesus returns or when you die and see him, life is supposed to get better and better and better and better and better. Because if God loves us enough for Jesus to die for us, why wouldn't he make our life better and better and better and better? And so we're expecting that. We're expecting Jesus to be the one who can restore all of our dreams. But what inevitably happens? Life. Even if we weren't a Christian, things happen because we live in a broken world where careers don't take the turns we want them to take, where relationships are harder than we expect, where sickness comes upon us, where our country gets thrown into chaos. Like, those things just happen. And all of a sudden, if Jesus isn't suiting us and isn't fitting what we want and isn't answering our prayers the way we want, it can be very easy to be disillusioned, distraught, and eventually distrusting of him and say, hey, I thought we had an agreement. I thought if I came into this with open hands, you were going to come into this and say, hey, I'm going to make your life better. The thing is, Jesus loves us enough to not 
serve that storyline. He loves you and me too much to facilitate that type of idolatry. I think there's this like idea that in our mind that we have a better plan that God would actually have for us. And so we have to fight for it and we have to grip, we have to grab from God's hands the very things we need. And that is a real misunderstanding of the character of this king. And so what you see over and over with Jesus is that he is going to intersect with our stories in order to invite us into his story. And he's going to challenge our picture of what flourishing looks like. He's going to challenge our picture of what a meaningful, significant life is going to look like so that we realize that without him, our lives are at best meaningless and without real hope. And so you see that happen in Scripture, and you've seen it happen in your own lives. One of my favorite moments in Scripture where this happens, where he's challenging someone's narrative so that he will have the opportunity to submit to the true king is when Jesus intersects with the rich young ruler. You've got a dude that's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. It, we find out later in the story that he's incredibly moral. So like he's like, man, that's four for four. And if you just s- suppose that he's good looking, he's got all the boxes checked, right? Rich, young, moral, ruler, who's good looking. Like he's got it all. And in that story, he runs up to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Meaning that even though he had all of those things, he was pretty sure he was still missing something. But his picture with Jesus was that Jesus needed to just fit in the last part of the puzzle that was missing, right? There was just one little thing that must be missing in the puzzle. And if Jesus gave that to him, then everything would be fine. And if you know the story, Jesus said, hey, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. So I've, I don't know if I've shared this before when I was at Salt, but I was telling the story to my, my son. I was coaching him in, in football, and he was eight at the time, and all of his, all of his uh, teammates were listening to the story, but I stopped there and didn't tell him how the rich young ruler responded. And so I said, what do you guys think he did? And they were like, duh, like he followed Jesus. <laughs> and, and so I go on and finish the story, and I tell him, no, He walked away sad because his riches were in something in this world, not in God. And they thought I was lying to them. Most of them apparently couldn't read, so they had to take my word for it. But they were throwing throwing footballs at me because in their mindset, in their economy, that made no sense. To walk away from the true king. And so Jesus is looking at us today and he's saying, hey, Is there anything in your life that's more valuable to you than me? Because if there is that thing, that will master your soul, and I love you too much to not challenge you for it. I love you too much because you cannot love both me and that other thing. And so it brings us to a place in the story where we have to decide, are we going to reject him? Are we going to repent of that thing and continue to follow him? And I think a lot of us get to a place where we're like, it's too much. And that's why we can say, Hosanna, and then the next day say, crucify him. Or at least leave me alone. But I wonder when we're rejecting him, if we're rejecting the king as he is. I think we see the picture of the humble king on the donkey coming into the city. And that is Jesus, the lion-like lamb. But have you read about the lamb-like lion who will return one day? to judge the living and the dead. There's another scene in the book of Revelation 
in Revelation 19, this is what it said. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and Righteousness And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. I don't think we're negotiating with him. And I think it's foolish for us to think we should ever negotiate with him. He's a king who is a lamb, but he's also a lion. And so will we reject him or will we accept him? And what does he do so that we can accept him? In the story, we see what it costs Jesus so that you and I could be a part of his family. The salvation of the king cost him nothing less than his own life, right? That's the gospel. There, there's the good news. When, when John takes the passage from Zechariah, instead of saying rejoice, he says fear not. Because typically when we see a king like this, our natural response is to fear him and to recoil from him. But he's saying, fear not, for this is a king who came to lay his life down for you and me. When the angels show up in Luke 2, they say, fear not, for behold, we bring good news of great joy that's for all people. For this Christ, the Lord, is a savior. What would it cost Jesus to be the savior who would free the nations? It would cost him not just a good day. It would cost him everything. He would ride into the city, but you know a few days later when he's arrested, he's stripped of every single thing he's wearing. So figuratively speaking, he's stripped of all dignity when he's beaten and spat upon and abused in in public. Physically, he's stripped and treated like a common criminal. So this king was willing to be treated like a criminal, to be beaten and then drugged dragged out of the city where he is carrying his own cross, and then when he's crucified, the very same people who are mocking him, he says, God, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So don't take for granted that Jesus already knew that we would say, crucify him, crucify him, and yet he would still go to the cross and die for us. Don't take for granted that Jesus would know that we would be willing to reject him on one day and then accept him the next day, and yet he still was on that cross dying for us because he knew that's what it would take to free us. If sin is, the essence of sin, one person said, is man substituting himself for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Jesus went to that cross to take what you and I deserve in order to give us what only he deserves. And in that Zechariah prophecy, it says that we are prisoners of hope, but in Christ that hope becomes realized. Do you know how powerful that is? There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but hope realized is a tree of life. Our hearts will be sick until we find our rest in Christ. But when we see what he did for us on the cross that day, then we're able to start resting in a king who's both a lion and a lamb. And that changes everything. So can I just give you three quick ways as a close up, like how this kind of king and coming to him can change you today? 
The first is probably the most obvious, but if you're here and you have never accepted this king, this king as he is, righteous and humble, holy and gentle, the God that we need, who was willing to lay down his life for you, then the invitation today is to accept him, to cry out to him and say, Lord, be my savior and my king. And rejoice that you do not have to fear. Rejoice that your hope will always be satisfied in him because he's the very treasure that you've been looking for. He's not the last piece of the puzzle. He is the entire puzzle. It's him. It's him. Accept him today. But there's another part, I think, for many of us who've already done that. There's an invitation in this king to be transformed by his character. It's one thing to sit back and marvel at the kingliness of Jesus, at his lion-like lambness and his lamb-like, lamb-like lineness, but what, about, what happens when he comes to live inside us? What happens when the righteous, humble one comes to invade our lives? It's supposed to change us, and it does start to change us. And so many of us understand what it looks like to be strong but not able to walk in humility, or some of us know what it means to be gentle but not have strength. So without Christ, we might be bulldozers or we might be people who get bulldozed, but in Christ, he starts to change the way we look at everything. And so the invitation today is to not just sit back and marvel at this king, but to ask this king and his character start to change the way you approach life and to bring his kingliness into your life in such a way that money and power and sex all start to have new meaning to you because you've been freed. You've been freed. You no longer need those things that the world needs. You no longer need the praise of man. And now you have the very king himself living in you. And so you're able to walk in such a way that the world is like, what is that? With strength and weakness, with righteousness and gentleness, you can approach relationships and brokenness. You can approach life and work in a way that is truly divine because Christ himself is fighting for us. So what would it look like as a church if this king was not one that we just sat back and looked at, but this was a king that we sat with and worshiped. And this king continued to transform us so that the way we enter into relationships, the way we deal with money, the way we serve, the way we work, it has a, it has a sense of hope and freedom that far exceeds this world. That would change things quite a bit. And there's one more, there's one more application, I think, from this, or at least one more invitation, is to seek the global movement that Christ has already brought you into. If you notice in this passage, that day it was in Jerusalem, but they were singing of a king who was worthy to be worshiped across the nations. And the Zechariah prophecy reminded us that Jesus came not just to save those who were in Israel, but he came to free those from across the globe. We're here today because that prophecy was being fulfilled, right? And a part of our obedience to Jesus is that we do not sequester away the grace that is changing us, but we seek to be a mission. We seek to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. And so what would it look like for Mercy Hill, even as you're thinking about this church and, and putting away money to build it, what does it look like to be a light for the nations that are here in, in Cincinnati and also to send people to the ends of the earth to continue to preach the very gospel that's changing you? That is something that Christ is saying, I'm your king. And this kingdom has no end. Invite all the world to, to enter into it. 
at the end of the book of the Lord of the Rings, it's not in the movies, but in the book, Aragorn goes into the city after this great battle in front of Minas Tirith. And he's the king that they've been waiting for, but he's not the king that has been announced yet. And everyone said, hey, the battle's been won. Are you going to enter in and announce yourself? He says, this is not the time. The city is broken. People are sick and hurting. And the battle still was being fought, actually, um, the next couple of days. And so he entered in that night under darkness, under with, with a cloak over him. And he went to each of his friends who were sick, and he went to pray for them and to heal them. And there was a prophecy that was spoken. It says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. The hands of our true king are the hands of a healer. Our king heals. He came to set things right. He came to restore what is broken. He came to do that through his death and through his resurrection. And so today, let's come to Jesus and let him heal us. Let's announce to the city that we have a king who can restore real hope. Let's announce to the nations that we have a king who's coming again but he's worthy today of all worship and praise. Will you pray with me? Father, we give thanks and we cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, for his name is Christ. Or we rejoice that he came not to crush us with judgment, but he came to set us free through his life and his death and his resurrection. We praise you that his hands are hands that heal. And we pray, Lord, that today there would be people who would experience that in depths of greatness that they've never imagined. And so I pray, Lord, for spiritual freedom to come upon everyone in this room. I pray that there would be a joy that overwhelms us because we've been loved by the King. I pray there would be a confidence, Lord, that fills us because we're being led by that king. And I pray that the worthiness of the king would saturate our hearts so that we would say, yes, Lord, my life is yours. And so I pray that you would raise up this church and that their cry would be worthy as the lamb and that that would go throughout Cincinnati and to the ends of the earth. So bless this people for your name's sake.